Come on, y'all. True House Stories on a Wednesday, baby. New York City style. United States style. 2 p.m., as I always promise, each and every week, right here. I can't say in the greatest radio station in the world, but I will say this. Right in your home, as your guys are the greatest of all. You're our fans who religiously come each and every week to hear the eulogy and homily from myself and all the wonderful guests that I've been blessed to have on our stage. And it's funny the way this stage has worked. COVID's a mother, right? Everybody says COVID's a mother effer. But I'll tell you something. The wonderful thing about COVID was brought us all together, including all of you at home. So I want to tell you that it's not forgotten that each and every week, and now we're on to episode 64, 64, put that into consideration, 64 episodes, 64 weeks, we've been grinding to make this show be seen by all of you so that you all can enjoy this great programming. We're kind of like BBC and PBS. We come to your door with our hand and our hearts open, and we love you for it. So, welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of NYC. And this week, this man has been sitting on the sidelines waiting to come and tell this rich dance music story. He's of Caribbean background and Jamaican, from what I, if I remember correctly. He's a talented brother, very talented. He has done many things, and he's going to tell you about it in a moment. But I want to say this so we're clear. There's a bunch of people that are involved with Technotronic. He happens to be one of the co-founding guys that's behind the scenes with Technotronic. And we're going to get clarified clearly to what the hell was going on with that group. But he will tell us himself. So from all the way from the UK and some of that you who live in the UK and your homeland, I'd like to introduce one of our brothers to the stage, the co-founder of Technotronic and all. Here he is himself, Mr. Eric Martin. Yo, what up, bro? What's up? What's up? So So good to be here, man. Thanks for having me on, Lynn. I know you waited a long time. I remember, you know, your, your, your PA saying to me, Lenny, is that the first date you can give us? Unfortunately, the list is crazy that people that want to get on this show, but I'm going to say this to you. I am lucky to have you on this show because you happen to be one of our architects, or should I say engineers, to how this all began, especially when this type of music popped over into the pop charts. Yeah, yeah. But, But we will say, and I ask everyone the first question even before we start, how are you coping through COVID? Because it's been a long road for a lot of us. You want to share that before we get started? Man, the COVID thing is a few things to say about that. Um, One thing is it was was pretty bad in the UK, um, especially at the the start of it. We, we, We got hit quite hard and our prime minister wasn't really... Well, he was indecisive. He wasn't really making the best decisions. And um, there was a lot of stuff going on. But to cut a long story short, I got it quite early. Um, and it was, it, was, it was quite frightening. 
one point, at one point I had, because um, my family in Jamaica, they, we have a WhatsApp group. And at one point, I had certain members of my family on, on in the WhatsApp group praying for me, man. It was, you know, it was difficult. I had a, I, I had a difficult time with it. But, uh, you know, I came through it. Um, if I'm honest, I'm not entirely... Uh, 100% even now. I think there's probably still some scarring on my lungs, if I'm honest. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, every, each day is a blessing. It's like I was saying to you earlier, man, like we, this is real. You know, we have lost real people and it upsets me a little uh, when people say, oh, you know, don't take the vaccine or don't do this or don't do that. And it's like, look, man, we, we've lost people. You know, you, you couldn't tell uh, a family member of someone who's actually died that this isn't this isn't real, right? So um, yeah, uh, I uh, my COVID situation wasn't great, but now I'm just feeling blessed that I'm I'm good and everything's cool. You didn't get on that iron lung, right? We didn't go that far. No. Okay. Good. No. No, that's the worry factor for everybody in the beginning. You know, they were throwing and intubating people right away yeah, because they didn't know what to do. They want to put you out and they wanted to get you under the iron lung. And, 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 you know, that thing, I guess when you're at the, the door of no turning back, I guess if that's the only thing you can do, then you have to accept what you dealt. But in your case, it looks like you got pretty close to that threshold line. And yeah, things things were bad. Things were bad. I mean, there was a good ten day period where I maybe maybe a week where I was convinced this is it. Like this is it. This, this is it. This is my this is this is my ending. You know. Um, so Did you yeah. ever go to the hospital. Or you stood at home all the way through it. Well, I got it at a time where they just started telling us to basically write it out. That was it. That was it. You Isn't know, that amazing? Out. Don't worry. You'll be fine. Stay home. Yeah. Relax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That just, was it. You know, just, just, you'll be okay. You'll be fine. I mean, it's like, well, don't, don't worry. Don't come here. Don't come here. Basically. Stay yeah. there. Yeah. And, and call us if it gets really bad. Yeah. <laughs> good, good advice, maybe, given, given that the hospitals were um, pretty dangerous places to be, right? Well, the best was when the prime minister got it in the sense that, you know, he played the role that it was not real, was not real, not real. Yeah. And then his life was pretty much at a point where it was over. Yeah. And he explains, and I remember him talking about the one nurse that stood with him day and night. Sure. You yeah. are on the other side of the whole thing. You're in the best care money can buy. Of course. You know, I give it to her, the nurse that stood with you because you, it's like the president of the United States. Um, they're going to pull out and roll out every possible miracle drug and every great thing to keep that person alive. You could be sure. And they did with him. Yeah, it's crazy. It, 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 it really was um, a crazy time in terms of what the, you know, politically speaking, how it went down. Um, our prime minister, you know, the NHS were under, still are actually, under a lot of strain, um, in need of lots of assistance from the government. And he's asking us to clap for them, you know, as if that can somehow help them. Um, so there's some pretty messed up things going on. Uh, Bolsonaro um, in, in Brazil, you know, convinced that it, 
it it's just it just didn't mean anything or it was easy to deal with or it was nothing at all and you know lots of people died a lot of people died and I, I, I took that personally because I have a lot of friends in Brazil and you know a lot of people died and uh you know there's blood on on on, on the hands of some leaders who made the wrong decisions that's about as far as I can go with that all right thank you for your political contribution and thank <laughs> you for as well being our correspondent from the foreign side of the United Kingdom and giving us your perspective and we do appreciate that because you were on the ground when it did happen and you were actually sick and you know what you yeah. came back some of us no others that just didn't make it and some that are not going to make it. And it's just the way it is. And we got to pray and hope for the best and keep smiling. I keep, yeah. smiling I keep smiling because you know what? It ain't over till it's really over. Yeah. No, on, that it's note, true. Sure. on that note, we want to get right into what we came here to do. Clear up all issues, any questions. We'll get it out today. So, <laughs> Everybody, you know, Lenny always asks the same question. It's a very basic question. Those that watch the show know that I'm going to ask this question. You know, how does music, Eric, find you as a young man, you know, young kid? Where, where does it begin for you, or how do you find it, you know, in that manner? Um, I think uh, uh, well, it, I have a few answers to that question, depending on what sort of music we're talking about. I mean, going right back, going, going way back, um, you know, my dad was a pastor, so I grew up in church and, you know, my first uh, exposure to music was gospel. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, all the, all the stuff that comes with being from a religious family. So there were certain tunes that certain, certain people who were, you know, making songs we could play. And there were certain songs that we couldn't play. Um, if... The general consensus in my household was that if it was reggae music was given a pass, right? That was allowed. Um, but even that was allowed to a point, like Bob Marley was allowed because Bob Marley was, you know, he was singing righteously. But there were certain, Peter Tosh was, was another conversation. So, you know, there was that side of, 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 of it, but my earliest memory of like wanting to be a part of the music industry was I was nine years old and uh, I heard a song by, by the Crusaders called street life. And at the time it was the Crusaders. It wasn't, I don't think they, I don't think it was billed as Randy Crawford until afterwards when it first came. And I heard that tune street life at that, that age. And I begged my mother to buy it for me. Um, and, uh, and so that was, I guess the first, you know, sort of tune that I purchased, I guess, um, I didn't have my own money. I was nine, but, uh, that was the moment when I realized people could make music of that caliber in a group. And I was, you know, from that point on, it was just, that was it. Um, okay. Moving on, moving forward, uh, I left, I, I'm from Wales. Um, you know, when I'm away and I tell people I'm from, the, I'm from Wales, they, uh, some people, depending on where you go, especially if you're in somewhere like Brazil, South America, they're like, where's that? What is that? 
Um, Wales, where I come from, uh, the city of Cardiff is uh, two hours from London. And um, so a lot of us were back and forth a lot. I got kicked out of school when I was a kid and I ended up in high school in London. Um, and so I knew from the time I was in high school that I would probably spend the rest of my life there. Uh, when I discovered music um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as someone who wanted to, to, to make a career out of it, I think I was about 16. I was working with um, a very, very dear friend of mine, practically a brother, uh, a guy called Jaffa, Jason Farrell, DJ Jaffa, they call him. Um, and uh, he was the first DJ I had ever seen with my own two eyes cutting and scratching and doing everything that the boys down in Bristol were doing and all of that. And it was just like, I was awestruck by him. I was like, you know, maybe 16, 15, 16 when I, when I bumped into him and I was just awestruck by his skill set and his knowledge of, of, of music and his ability to um, sort of always, always import great songs from the States and things like that. So that was my first kind of, okay, this is great. Uh, I ended up leaving um, Wales for the last time around uh, 1986. And I went into London um, alone and uh, under dodgy circumstances, which I really won't go into because obviously sometimes you can't do, sometimes you can't tell a story without destroying your heroes. So I'm, I'm, I'll just say I went into London and uh, I roughed it for a bit, bit of car chopping, bit homelessness. Um, I, I don't know, you know, how deep I can go, but there was... <laughs> My brother, you can go as deep as you need to go. Yeah, no, it's good. So um, Whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us, do not. Do not. My silence... Ooh. My silence is me taking this all in. I'm I'm like at home. I'm going to ask the questions people at home are going to ask soon. You'll see. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. You, so, okay. So, so how deep we talk? Now, I want to know. We talk about 1986. We hear Run DMC on the on the radio. What's good? Give us the landscape of what was going on around you. Everything. Okay. 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 So, um, you know, when I first decided to leave and and enter London for the second time after high school. I popped out. I came back in. When I decided to come back in, um, you know, One DMC had already released uh, Sucker MCs, and you know that this had already happened. Uh, you know, the, the the sort of order of the day was listening to anything that Rick Rubin had made, um, you know, and and also anything that Kraftwerk had made. You know, these these sorts of really cool things. My my personal hero as well was was Curtis Mantronic. And the reason why he was my hero, well, there were lots of reasons, but apart from his musical talent, he was the only Jamaican I knew that was producing electronic music, um, aside from reggae music. He was the only Jamaican I knew. So, and I, I can see from your face, you didn't, re you didn't realize he was a Jamaican, right? No, I knew that, but I was going to say to you, what about Eddie Grant? Right, but Eddie Grant was making reggae. You know what I'm saying? Like Eddie Grant for us was champion in New York. That, but that's right. okay. It's your story. But, Go ahead. But aside, but aside, okay. But aside from like a, outside of reggae music, right? Uh, he was the guy that made anyone who was, you know, maybe West Indian of you know origin. We're looking at him and we're thinking, boy, you know, what's going on here? And then you delve a bit, you delve a bit deeper, and you realize that you know. 
uh, our culture was at the forefront of hip hop. And you're like, well, wait, this is, I have a, I have a claim, you know, I, I, this, I can claim some of this. So I moved into, uh, to, to London, you know, uh, the situation wasn't great. Um, I didn't want to be around any sort of anyone, any family, any, you know, I didn't want to do that. So I would couch up uh, a few nights, um, you know, I did the Hyde Park thing, slept in Hyde Park or whatever. Um, I don't know if anyone listening can remember. They probably don't know, but, you know, Hyde Park used to open at like quarter to six in the morning. So I used to hang out in Oxford Street, hang out, little skinny kid talking to people after talking to the bouncers, talking to DJs, talking to whoever I could talk to just to, just to get as close to six o'clock as I possibly could so that I didn't have to, you know, that I could go into the park and sit down and whatever. So it was tough times, bro. It was tough times. Um, and then after that, after a while, I ended up, uh, you know, hooking up with my sister. My sister was like, look, you know, you can't live like that. You know what I mean? That's not cool. Um, and it was, happened to be, this particular sister happened to be, uh, you know, someone who cared about me a hell of a lot. So, um, yeah, I, I ended up then, then I, then I, then I sort of got into a situation where I hooked up with a dude called, uh, Alfred Jacuno, who was like, look, why don't you just come and do whatever it is you want to do? And let's see if we can, you know, we can hook something up for you. Um, and, uh, and at that point, um, I got back in touch with, 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 uh, with my dear friend, um, Jaffa. Uh, and called him up, but it wasn't rosy. You know, it was difficult for us. Uh, we spent the next year or so struggling. Um, I remember we thought we were rich, right? Cause we got signed to, to, you know, to a record label for like 2000 pounds or something. And we thought we were, we thought we, we thought we were like, you know what, you know, mom, you don't have to work again. You know, <laughs> wait a second, you know, Coming from nothing, two thousand pounds is yeah. it's tremendous amount. Yeah, of yeah, man. You know, we, yeah, yeah. So you know that was that, and um, uh, it was something like that. Anyway, I don't, I could, I could be getting the figure wrong, but you know, it was something like that. Um, anyway, uh, we did a few bits and pieces. Um, the the thing with me when I when I think about my movement through the industry. I was very fortunate to have had, I call them uncles, right? Danny D, Jazzy B. These guys were my uncles, Trenton Harrison, you know, Cliff White. These people were guys who were 10 or so years older than me, maybe eight years old or whatever. And they were already doing it. No, let's not forget. Hang on. Danny D was at Cool Tempo already at that point. Listen, Danny D was the man. I mean, the first he was already guy, he was around already. He was already have he was stroking heavy. Danny D was Danny D. Like you know, I, I wouldn't be like, and and I guess you know, Technotronic wouldn't have been what it was. You know, Danny Danny D. Um, I can't say enough about that guy. Uh, was always, always uh, very very encouraging and. He gave me my first job as a producer ever. I think it was 1987. I produced a track for uh, a rap group called the We Papa Girl Rappers um, that uh, Danny, um, yeah, and Danny gave me the reins on that. And that was my first production ever for 
anyone other than myself. And I think I was 16 or something, something like that. So Danny, I got nothing but love for Danny. Um, you know, it was, it was amazing. And those sorts of relationships, right. They're exclusive to you and that person. So, so, you know, you, you can't really, you know, properly articulate how, how, how much that means to you. Right. You know, so, so it's, it's, it's one of those situations where I'm just grateful to have had that happen. Um, after uh, a short while, Danny introduced me to, uh, you know, uh, Trenton Harrison, who was, <clears throat> who again, I can't sing enough praises for that guy. Um, it's, it's an interesting one when you, when you deal with people from certain walks of life. The music industry is the only industry in the world, entertainment industry, where people feel they can wake up and give themselves a title. Everywhere else, you got to go to uni. You got to go to college. You got to get things. But you can wake up and decide that, hey, I'm a manager. You can wake up and decide, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a music. But you can just decide. And it doesn't mean you can do it. It just means you've made the, you know. But in those days, um, everybody was winging it. So the book was being written. And I can't stress to young, the younger generation enough how there wouldn't have been uh, you know, things like splice if there weren't conversations over boardroom tables with the likes of, you know, um, Paul Sprague and David Glick, Trenton Harrison, Leo Cohen, Bert Padel. These guys were trying to bring in law that were making the things possible that the likes of splice are enjoying right now in terms of how do we how do we find a happy medium here where the person that has just sampled this record is actually not going to be walking home penniless after having made a great track with two seconds of our tune. So, so all of these things were, were all happening. So everyone in those days was winging it. And apart from, you know, the, the, the sort of conventional managers of, of the traditional sense, like the George Martin, the Beatles and people like that, apart from those guys, the younger dudes, the, the Trenton Harrisons, the Danny D's, you know, the, 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 the Ray Cosberts, those guys were determined to do it right. But at the same time, they were having to learn as they went. They were, they were learning on the go, you know? So, um, well, I've got nothing, nothing there's but a reason, there's a reason for that. Okay. There's a reason for that. Now I'm going to make everybody understand that for a second. The first record that has a tremendous amount of samples UK-based, hits American shores, nothing is cleared, was a CJ McIntosh pay, pump up the jam, uh, not pump the, um, pump, pump up the, pump, pump up the, the volume. Volume. I was going to say pump the jam, sorry. It's just so yeah. funny to pump. So, Chris McIntosh produces his track. Yeah, yeah. He's got James Brown, he's even got my friend at the time, Carlos Cordova, with him laughing, and they sampled every record, yeah. from <laughs> Jive to James Brown. Yeah, the kitchen sink, man. So what happened was, yeah. pre to that, mind you, everyone, sampling was samples of a piano sound. They were playing it. Yeah. Now this was samples that all of a sudden were put together in one single, like 35 samples. Yeah. yeah and the man. record goes pop international around the world. Yeah, yeah. The F up. 
blows up yeah. digging in life. That's what he's talking about. So guys like Paul Sprague and all these guys yeah, come yeah, to the yeah. table and say, whoa, hang on. We got to quickly. We got to figure this out. Yeah. And, and because that was a nightmare. Man, yeah. everybody came out of the woodwork. Dude, people were pissed. They oh, were listen, it was crazy. I remember... Um, I remember some some scorchers, man. Uh, they they had um, a, a law that came in, I think, in the late nineties, where they they prohibited, um, like, you could not. I think it was the two second rule, where you could play a hit and not be and not be, you know, sued for it. But prior to that rule. People would people were taking you to the cleaners for a snare drum. They were taking you to the cleaners for a snare drum, you know. Or James Brown saying, "Ha!" And you were you you use that, you're screwed. So so it was a, a very very interesting time. But at the same time, looking back now, I know now that we were privileged to have come up through that because uh, the the problems of today are new and exclusive to today. But but they're not the problems that we dealt with, which have made the industry the way it is now, right? Um, so well, so because prior to that, prior to us coming up, there was no technology accessible for guys that had no money. Think about that. Everybody yeah. that was coming up at that time was basically with lint in their pants, not coins. <laughs> so if they got their hands on a sampler and started to to lift records, they were thrilled. And then eight, remember, we only had eight seconds of sampling time. And that was like Lenny said lint, you know. Letty brought lint back, man. Lint, listen to listen to Uncle Letty. Lint, not coins. Lint <laughs> in funny. your pants. But it's true because that means you didn't have two nickels to rub together. Because mostly everybody I remember had no money when we were starting. That's right. That's why. Right. That's why. Right. And you know, again, you know, um, just getting back to the the whole thing, what you just said, the social conditions were, uh, you know, massively uh, determined what direction you went in. People who were um, a little more sort of uptight and, and angry and unable to set down the weight of the shit that life has thrown at them, they, they made hip hop. People who were able to, people who were still from those conditions and were still pissed, but were, all about having a good time. They made house, and 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 but the, but the the conditions were the same. The conditions were the same. It's just that the people were very different. And if you look at the type of people that came into the house fraternity from uh, you know the other backgrounds, from from the middle class backgrounds, and all, you would see where most of those people would go. And uh, you know, but with those social conditions come comes a lot of coolness. So to take um, an example from our era, uh, if you look at something like Planet Rock, so you look at Planet Rock now and you're thinking, right, um, what's happening there? Arthur Baker comes from a very different background to, you know, Bam and them. And you've got a situation where you have a situ, uh, you know, one set of people that are coming into the studio, not quite caring what's going to happen, but they, they bring in that vibe, they bring in that flavor and it's very street. And then you've got this other dude who's got a fair light, which is the, the only sampler really around at the time. I, and it just had a few seconds on it that you could take. 
big old machine that costs thousands of pounds. Um, and, uh, yeah, and he sampled, um, uh, trans, trans Europe. Is it trans Europe express? Trans Europa, trans Europa, you know, the, 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 um, uh, People, people watching this now and they're saying, oh my God, yeah, yeah, craft work. Sorry, craft work. Sorry, guys. That's all right. I had a, bl- I had a blank. Trans, Trans- Express. So he's come in and he's taken that and he's flung it together. And then, you know, the, the, the rappers have done what they've done on the top. And then you've had this, and then you have this tune, which is like at the dawn of, of sort of popular hip hop, at the very dawn of it. And it's massive and it's huge. And it would not have happened were it not for those two completely separate social conditions clashing together. And um, it, it's it's the beauty of, of, of what we came through, what, what we're doing. My favorite house music producers have always been those who can walk that line. You know, I've never been the polished sort of, you know, I respect it. I respect it. I respect the clean stuff. I respect, I respect, you know, the low pass filter on everything. <laughs> I respect it, but I'm more of a, I'm more of a Kenny dope, Todd Terry type of guy, a Roger Sanchez type of guy. I like to hear you've been through the muck, man. When I, when you, when you put a tune together, I like to hear what touches me where I know there's someone involved who is, maybe 80% caring about what music is supposed to do, but there's a 20% side of that person that's still rebellious, that still doesn't really care whether that thing is in tune or not, or whether it's perfectly aligned with the other thing on the grid or not, you know? And I like that. Uh, I like the grit, uh, but that's just me. That's my, my personal um, my personal thing. And it's what we attempted to do with, uh, with the Technotronic stuff, really, <clears throat> was the sort of take everything from uh from from hip-hop take everything from afrobeat um in the traditional sense in the felakuti kasav sense of afrobeat not in the not in the new stuff um but you know to have that sort of mixture of those incredible uh genres of music and stick them together in a you know using house as 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 you know as a vehicle and i think yeah, I think to this day it's always impressive when someone can pull that off. The thing is, is that you had, you know, street credibility because you lived the street level. For so sure. you were able to share that experience through the melodies and the rhythms. You yeah. Know, that's so that's so important. You know, that's what makes that music stand out. It's got that that bite. You know, it's not fluffy. It's tough. It's rough. You know, yeah. it's what yeah. that is. It's got to be that way. And yeah. people who came to hear it and dance, they can relate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't take itself. You know, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Uh, you know, the, the 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 first Technotronic album does not take itself too seriously. You know, it's not. I I, I always call it the the you know the unapologetic album. Because that kick drum, it's just not apologizing for anything. It's just there, smack in your face, boom, boom. And everything around it is paying homage to it. And it's not afraid to, to, to stomp in that way. And I guess that slight variance that makes it, uh, 
that sound that way is the European element uh, of, of 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 what we were doing because there is a European a European element to 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 what we were doing. So, um, in addition to everything else, uh, helping to make that all a little different. And it's I think there's something to be said as well then for um, for simplicity. Uh, my my philosophy is that if you have one snare to choose from, you're going to do something really cool with it because it's all you've got. Whereas if you're going to sit there and go through sounds, go through sounds, go through sounds, you know, try this, try that, you know. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.